In order to prevent obesity, you really have to do something about the environment, which you know, many people are trying to do, but it's going to take quite a while because we have figured out how to feed the billions of people on this planet in a cheap, calorically dense way. And going back is going to be really, really tough. That was Dr. Caroline Apovian, co-director of the Center for Weight Management and Wellness at Brigham and Women's Hospital, explaining why so much of obesity medicine focuses on treatment rather than prevention. And you're listening to Weight Matters, where we unpack the science behind our weight, why it matters, and the effects it has on our health, psychology, and society. This season, join Drs. Louis Aroni and Katherine Saunders, leading experts in the field of obesity medicine and co-founders of IntelliHealth, as they tackle the many ways weight impacts our broader health and, along with experts in the field, explore innovative strategies for preventing and treating obesity. In this episode, Dr. Apovian describes new therapeutic treatments for obesity and weight management, including a recently approved drug that could transform the way doctors approach the disease. She also breaks down the physiological explanation for why dieting does not provide long-term weight loss for most individuals. We're glad to have you along for this journey. There's a lot to discuss, so let's dive in. Hello and welcome to this episode of Weight Matters. I'm Dr. Louis Aroni. I'm here with Dr. Katherine Saunders, and we're with our guest today, Dr. Caroline Apovian. Dr. Apovian is the co-director of the new Center for Weight Management and Wellness in the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Hypertension at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and a member of the faculty at Harvard Medical School. She's a past president of the Obesity Society and was the editor of the Endocrine Society's Guidelines on Medical Treatment of Obesity. And she's also an accomplished musician who plays regularly with her band in Boston. The topic of our discussion today is new therapeutic options for the treatment of obesity, including the FDA approval of a medication that many of us consider to be a game changer, Wegovy. Hello, Caroline. Uh, thanks for joining us, and we're excited to have you here. Hi, Lou. It's a pleasure to be here. We thought it would be good for you to tell us a little about how you got here and how you got into the field of obesity treatment? Well, it's a long story, <laughs> everyone's but uh, everyone's is. It started with my mother coming here from Italy and being appalled with processed food. She was quite appalled. Uh, she was used to living on a farm in the hills of Bologna, Italy, eating eggs and fruits and vegetables and healthy food. And she came to the United States before I was born and, you know, it was the 60s and she was faced with uh, high sugar, high fat processed foods that were the new, you know, the new way of eating while on the go. And so as I was growing up, she really became knowledgeable about healthy eating and healthy foods. She followed Adele Davis and Carlton Fredericks and all of the nutrition 
gurus way back then. And Jack LaLanne for exercise. You know, a lot of people don't know who Jack LaLanne even is. Can you believe this? The mm-hmm. 20-year-old fitness trainers, they don't know who Jack LaLanne is. Look him up. So anyway, I grew up like that. And when I went to medical school and in training, I was looking for a way to combine what I love to do, which is diet and nutrition and healthy foods with medicine. And I trained in medicine at the Deaconess Hospital, New England Deaconess. And George Blackburn was there, the guru of nutrition. And he was a surgeon and he performed the first gastric bypass in New England in 1972. And he brought nutrition to medicine. He truly did. And George Bray did the same thing in the South, as you know. So they were the, really the two nutrition gurus. And I trained under him and I did a fellowship in nutrition and metabolism. It was exactly what I, what I wanted to do, preventive medicine, to treat people in a preventive way before they develop obesity, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease. And so that's how it all started. Thank you for sharing your story with us, Caroline. That is a wonderful background. And you're fortunate to have worked with so many of the original leaders in this field and then become one of the leaders yourself. It's interesting that you talked about the idea of prevention because many of the people in our field feel like they're doing more treatment than prevention. And, you know, we wish that we were on the other side of preventing people from even developing obesity. But since obesity is is such a huge problem in this country, we find ourselves really treating the obesity once people have developed it. Have you in your career been able to focus on the prevention as well as the treatment? Or what have you found to be the balance between the two? That's a very good question, Catherine, because Prevention is really tough in this environment. We are inundated with an environment that promotes easy, fast energy intake. Certainly, we have a sedentary lifestyle, but that's maybe not really the issue so much as the environment that we're in, certainly in the United States and and in many parts of the world. And the increasing prevalence of obesity can be thought to have increased because of this easy availability of food that is high in caloric content, high in simple carbohydrates and saturated fat, and also preservatives. There are many theories as to why we're suddenly defending a higher body weight set point in this environment, but it looks as if many of us or most of us are defending an abnormal body weight in this environment. And so by the time you're born, you grow up, you're a child, by the time that happens, you're already inundated with all of this so-called toxic food that prevention is very, very difficult. So yes, most of the time we are treating obesity and not preventing it. And that's too bad. In order to prevent obesity, you really have to do something about the environment, which, you know, many people are trying to do, but it's going to take quite a while because we have figured out how to feed the billions of people on this planet in a cheap, calorically dense way. And 
going back is going to be really, really tough. Yeah. And some people think that there may be no way back to the earlier time except by educating the public and allowing them to make better food choices. And I, I think we're beginning to see that. But for now, people like us, you at the Brigham, uh, we here at Wild Cornell have in front of us people with obesity who have medical problems associated with obesity, and we have the task of trying to help them to lose weight to alleviate those medical problems. And I think that's one reason why we have gone to the use of medication when we find that diet doesn't work. I mean, I, I certainly for 20 years uh, in our practice tried using diets of all types. And eventually, I think most people have come to the conclusion that it's just not enough. What do you think about that? Oh, I completely agree with you, Lou. You know, let's talk about what really is happening with obesity. We recognized obesity to be a disease. And it seems to be a disease of the energy regulation system in the brain. So the arcuate nucleus in the hypothalamus contains neurons that receive afferents, feedback from your gut and from fat tissue. And the first big hormone feedback that was discovered in 1994 was leptin, as you know, and leptin is secreted from fat tissue and hits that area in the brain and leads to satiety. So leptin tells you that you have enough fat stores and you're full. And since 1994, we've discovered all kinds of other hormones that do similar things and do the opposite. So there are two sets of neurons in the brain. You activate one side, you get hunger. You activate the other side, you get satiety. And there's something that went awry with this energy regulation system. And many of us think that it's our interaction, the body senses the environment full of, of highly dense food. And for whatever reason, it causes this increase in hunger or a decrease in satiety so that you are hungrier for these foods and you eat until you defend a higher body weight set point that is unhealthy for you. So that's what we think happened. We don't know if it's, you know, some kind of inflammation, you know, inflammation, there's a chronic state of inflammation with excess fat tissue. We don't know if that inflammation hits the neurons in the brain as well as the organs. That could be the case such that these satiety signals can't get in to the hypothalamus. And so we're we don't hear, we're not listening to satiety signals until a, a higher body set point is defended. We just don't know what the dysfunction really is, but there is a dysfunction and most of us are defending a higher body weight set point to the tune of about 42% of Americans having obesity. That's almost half. So somehow we're all defending a higher body weight, weight set point. Most of us who have obesity have metabolic derangements from the obesity. Only a quarter of people with obesity remain metabolically healthy. What do I mean by that? Metabolically healthy means that your fat tissue does not produce 
these substances that then go to other organs and lead to diseases like heart disease, diabetes, and hypertension. But three quarters of those people who have obesity do have these metabolic derangements. And that's why having excess fat tissue is so detrimental because it leads to other diseases. Also metabolically, it leads to anatomic issues like back pain and osteoarthritis as well. So the medications that are currently on the market cause an increase in the sensation of satiety by hitting one side of that arcuate nucleus, the side that leads to satiety. So these medications enter the brain and hit the POMC area, which leads to satiety. So that's how most of these medications work. In fact, there's only one on the market right now that is a fat blocker, which leads to malabsorption of fat calories. The others are called appetite suppressants. Caroline, thank you so much for explaining the pathophysiology of of how obesity is a disease and why it's a disease and what happens to our bodies with excess weight and why it's so hard to lose weight. This is such an important concept that many people really don't understand and you know makes the case for medical management of obesity including medications in many cases. You have authored guidelines on medical management of obesity that really suggest which patients or which people are good candidates for medication when diet and exercise are not enough. Can you tell us a little bit about how people know if they're good candidates for medication and at what point after trying diet and exercise, should people say, this is not working, it's time for medication? So let's first go over why diet and exercise very often doesn't work. So when you're, you go on a diet, you try to eat less calories than you need to maintain your current body weight. Let's say you want to lose 10 or 20 pounds. So if you usually eat 2,500 calories a day to maintain a weight that is 20 pounds higher than you want to be, you're going to have to decrease that caloric intake per day by about 500 to 1,000 calories to get about a pound or two of weight loss per week. When you do that, you start to lose body fat, but in losing body fat, there's less leptin that's secreted from that adipose store. And leptin and, and also other of these satiety hormones are, are secreted less from the gut as well. And that area in the brain starts to fire less for satiety and it starts firing more for hunger. And the other thing that less leptin does circulating is it reduces your resting metabolic rate. And this is an amazing thing that the body does. It just is trying what it tries to do by these ways, by reducing your resting metabolic rate and making you more hungry, it's trying to get back to that body weight. So you lose that 20 pounds and then you get really, really hungry. And in fact, your resting metabolic rate drops so that you stop losing weight and you start gaining weight. As a matter of fact, you gain it back. And that's why diet and exercise alone very often doesn't work because, I mean, it may work. You may lose the 20 pounds and feel great for a few weeks, but then 
your body is really trying to get that 20 pounds back on. And so what these medications do is they promote more satiety. So they correct, they correct that metabolic gap and get you to the weight that you want to be. Now, when is that important to start looking for medication? So the guidelines state that because of the risk benefit of medications. So the medications that are on the market, they have side effects. So the older ones can raise your heart rate, they can raise your blood pressure, they can cause anxiety, insomnia. And the newer ones are much, much better and they can cause a little nausea. So we say that you really have to have obesity to the tune of a BMI, body mass index, over 30 with no comorbidities to be a candidate for an anti-obesity agent. What's your BMI? Your BMI is your weight in kilograms over your height in meters squared. A good way of calculating is to take your weight in pounds, multiply by 703, and divide by your height in inches twice. So if your BMI is between 18 and 25, that's normal. If it's over 25, you're overweight. If it's over 30, you have obesity. If your BMI is over 30, you're certainly a candidate for an anti-obesity medication for treatment for your obesity. If your BMI is over 27 and you already have you know, hypertension or diabetes or prediabetes or osteoarthritis or reflux or sleep apnea, you are also a candidate for one of these medications. We try to get people between a BMI of 25 to 27 to work on diet and exercise first. But in some cases, when you already have some comorbidities and your BMI is over 25, we may also feel that you're a candidate for anti-obesity medication. So it's rather loose. It's really up to the physician. And I certainly think that anyone who has excess fat tissue and has comorbidities is a candidate to get treatment with a medication. Really good points about that, and thank you for reviewing that. It really, in a, in a nutshell, summarizes exactly who is a candidate for treatment of their excess weight or obesity. Now, the FDA recently approved a new medication, which is known as uh, semaglutide or Wegovy. What do you think about Wegovy? What's your opinion? Well, I'm really excited about this new drug that's out there to manage obesity. And the reason why is because it is an analog of one of the hormones that I was talking about that is secreted in the gut and leads to satiety in the brain. And it's a GLP-1 hormone analog. There's another GLP-1 that was approved for obesity several years ago called loraglutide or Sexenda. And this drug, semaglutide or Wigovi, is even more efficacious for obesity than loraglutide. It's slightly different in terms of a molecule and it leads to even more weight loss than loraglutide did. And on top of that, loraglutide is a daily injection with a tiny little needle 
and semaglutide is a weekly, once a week injection. So it's easier to use. It gives you double the weight loss and it's a naturally occurring hormone. And so it's completely different from anything else that we've had on the market for obesity because the other older drugs, the oral agents, fentramine and topiramate and combinations and bupropion and naltrexone had side effects because they're not naturally occurring hormones. They're actual drugs that are man-made that cause satiety, but they also cause elevations in heart rate and blood pressure and insomnia and anxiety. So what kind of weight loss do we see? Well, the study that was published in the New England Journal showed that in those patients who used semaglutide 2.4 milligrams once a week for one year, there was a 12 to 15% weight loss on average. And in fact, one third of those patients lost over 20% of their weight. This is the amazing piece that one third of people who take semaglutide will lose over 20% of their body weight. And so that, that 20% is about what we can get with a laparoscopic adjustable gastric band. And it's almost what we can get with the sleeve gastrectomy. That's bariatric surgery. So why do we think this is so exciting? We think it's exciting because we've been trying for years now to figure out how to do medically what bariatric surgery does. So what does bariatric surgery do? The plumbing is that you create a smaller pouch than the usual large stomach and you do a bypass of part of the small intestine. In the case of the Roux-Y gastric bypass, in the case of the sleeve gastrectomy, you just take a piece of stomach out and throw it away. We used to think that these procedures worked by making the stomach smaller so you can't eat that much, and also by malabsorbing food because you're bypassing a piece of the stomach. That's not how these surgeries work. They work because they adjust the gut hormone milieu such that the satiety hormones are secreted earlier as food comes in and makes you feel full with less food. It's amazing. And so we are trying to figure out which hormones does bariatric surgery adjust so that we can do it medically with a pill or an injection. And we figured a little bit of this out because we now have semaglutide, GLP-1, that we inject once a week. A good amount of patients lose a nice amount of weight, but it's still not what bariatric surgery can do, which is the Roux-Y gastric bypass can give you 33 to 35% weight loss. It must be adjusting other hormones, and it is. We know it is. It's adjusting not just GLP-1, but it's increasing CCK, it's increasing PYY and GIP, and so several other hormones, not just GLP-1. So we're trying now to add to GLP-1 and create multi-agonists, so add GIP and glucagon, for example, to GLP-1 in one pen and see what kind of weight loss we can get 
with those agents, they're probably going to be injections, but they're probably going to be once a week. And if we can get 35% weight loss with one or two of these gut hormones, we don't need to do bariatric surgery. Now, the caveat here is obesity is a disease. So I get this question all the time. Doc, how long do I have to take this medication? (laughs) The answer is, you know, you're going to take it indefinitely because if you lose 20% of your body weight with an appetite suppressant like this and you stop the drug, your appetite's going to come back because, you know, that adjustment was made by a drug. And so if you stop the drug, the weight's going to come back because that dysfunction's going to come back. So it's the same kind of question you would ask if your blood pressure is normal because you're on lisinopril. Do you stop the lisinopril because your blood pressure is normal? No, you don't. Because if you stop the lisinopril, your blood pressure is going to go back up. Same thing with anti-obesity agents. I agree with you about the question that patients always ask about how long they need to be on the medication for. And the correlation with other chronic diseases requiring long-term therapy is a really great way to explain it. Have you found among your patients when you suggest the use of an anti-obesity medication, what are their perceptions? How is the willingness to start an anti-obesity medication? Are they resistant? Do you find that there's stigma? What is the conversation like when you suggest that a patient is a good candidate for a medication like this? That's a very good question. We'll juxtapose it to when I talk to patients about bariatric surgery. So for bariatric surgery, you are a candidate if your BMI is over 40 or over 35 with one condition such as diabetes, sleep apnea, heart disease, hypertension. You're a candidate for a medication if your BMI is over 30 or over 27 with a comorbidity. When I talk to patients whose BMI is over 30 or over 27 comorbidities about starting an anti-obesity agent, it really depends on their understanding of their problem being a disease. If they understand that, then they're absolutely on board with starting a medication. If, however, they stigmatize themselves or they've bought into the stigma that obesity is a matter of willpower and it's your own fault, you eat too much, you don't exercise, you're lazy, all those awful adjectives that many of us think about when we see someone with moderate or or severe obesity, if they feel about that themselves, they're going to feel that this is something that they're a failure at, that it's a moral failure, that they've tried all these diets and exercise and they lose some weight but gain it back and it's just their own fault. And if they really feel that, they're they're not going to be amenable to a medication because they don't understand that it's not a crutch, that they have indeed a disease, just like diabetes, just like hypertension, and they deserve to be treated for it, just like anybody with any other disease or cancer. They deserve to be treated for it and not to be stigmatized. And in fact, these medications should be covered by all insurance, all insurance. The payers should be covering this. And that's another story. 
but it really blocks the efficacy that we can give to patients for their obesity to have to fight with insurance companies who don't understand also that obesity is, is a disease. The conversation can really get derailed when patients who are eligible for surgery discuss surgery with me because that is a more aggressive treatment for obesity. It's surgery. So patients who really think that that their disease is under their control are not going to understand why I'm talking about surgery. And so very often I get comments such as, oh, doc, you know, I, I don't want the easy way out. I don't want that surgery. I know I can do this by myself. I know that I just have to I just have to use more willpower. I don't need that operation. And you would never, ever say that to a cardiologist who recommends a stent for your heart disease. You would never say, oh, oh, doc, you know, I don't need that stent. I know I can stop eating fast food and clean out my arteries. I know I can do it. You wouldn't do that. You would accept a stent for your heart disease. You would accept gallbladder surgery If you had cholecystitis, you would accept cancer treatment if you had cancer. And many of these diseases are are also diseases of lifestyle, believe it or not. And you wouldn't do that. You would accept the surgery. So in this country, with 42% of patients having obesity and about 10% of patients having extreme obesity and candidates for surgery, we only treat about 2% of the population eligible for an anti-obesity agent with one of those agents. And we only do about 250,000 procedures per year for obesity. And that's about 2% of the population eligible for bariatric surgery. So this is where we are with the treatment of obesity. We're nowhere near where we should be. I know Dr. Aroni and Dr. Saunders wrote a paper about the juxtaposition of obesity and diabetes, we have, you know, 15% of patients in the United States with type 2 diabetes, and 86% of those are treated for their diabetes. And juxtapose that to the 2% that are treated for obesity, and we've got a lot of work to do to convincing patients, doctors, and payers that obesity is a disease worth treating to then reduce the mortality, certainly, of obesity long-term, but also the morbidity because obesity leads to all of these other conditions, heart disease, diabetes, hypertension, that then require the use of other medications. And we have patients whose BMIs are over 30 who are on 10 other medications for all of their other conditions. That's right. I think we're finally coming into a new era of obesity treatment with very effective medications and combinations of medications like Wegovy and the other medicines that we have. We've never seen so many people reaching 15 or 20% weight loss, which is, is really critical. You know, you think about 10% weight loss, it reduces your risk of diabetes by 80%. 15 and 20%, I mean, people really feel the difference. They really feel the difference. And perhaps more importantly, many of these people want to eat less. They want to lose weight. You know, there are some where it's just a metabolic issue. I I completely agree with that. But in many of these people, 
they'll say, I want to eat less, I just can't do it. We just saw a patient yesterday who really was hating on himself because of that. He just could not deal with his inability to comply. Very successful in other areas of his life and giving him medication, he was like, this is unbelievable. All of a sudden, I'm doing what I want to do. Like, how, how is this possible? We explained how by using a medicine like semaglutide or Wegovy, we're replicating the hormones that make you feel like you've eaten. So you feel like you've eaten. That's a good way of suppressing your appetite. So I think we're into a whole new era of managing patients and issues like stigma will begin to recede. Another interesting thing, I was talking to a psychiatrist the other day, and we had psychiatrists used to think, I mean, people used to think, rather, that depression was just a behavioral thing. You know, why, why don't you just snap out of it and you'll feel better? And now we know that there are physical things that cause depression and that there are medications that dramatically help people. But the psychiatrists, so they're treating depression, they don't realize that obesity is the same thing in some cases. So we really need to get the education out there. And that's, that's the purpose of our podcast. That's great. I love talking about some of my patients because they're, they're real great illustrations of what we can do to help people. And this is a particular patient of mine who's in the hospital right now. He's 20. Lovely kid. He was a football player in high school. And when he was a football player, he weighed about 500 pounds. And now he's 636 pounds, or he was. And he was admitted on my service four weeks ago with new onset congestive heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And it turns out that it's probably from COVID, he, he got COVID on top of being vaccinated. And we think it's COVID myocarditis that really spilled him into congestive heart failure. So he's in the hospital with tachycardia and reduced ejection fraction. And I was consulted, I was able to put him on a very low calorie diet called the protein sparing modified fast. Four weeks later, he weighs 484 pounds. Now, is that all fat loss? No, he got diureased. He was diureased about 35 liters of fluid, which is, you know, about 80 pounds. But the rest is fat loss on the diet. Now, what are we going to do? We're not going to send him home. Because if we send him home, he's going to go back to his normal diet and gain all the weight back because his body defends this body weight in this environment. So we're going to do a sleeve gastrectomy while he's in the hospital. And then we're going to send him home. His hormones will readjust and hopefully he'll defend this lower body weight set point. He might even lose some more from the sleeve gastrectomy. But this is a beautiful example of what we can do with the combination of diet exercise. He's going to be able to exercise now. He's more mobile and a surgical intervention. And we could have done this with medications, but for him, he came in at a BMI of 87. It's now less than 70, but his BMI is clearly 
candidate for an operation. Maybe in the future, we'll be able to give him, patients like him, these triple agonists to simulate what we can do with surgery. What a great, great example of what obesity can look like at an extreme level like this and what options we have to help people. Caroline, thank you so much for being with us today. The discussion was amazing. I really appreciate your coming on and I'm looking forward to having you on again. I echo Dr. Roni's sentiments. Thank you so much, Caroline, for describing these really complex concepts and complex biology um, in a very understandable way. So thank you again. We hope to have you on in the future. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Weight Matters. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. To learn more about how Dr. Saunders and Dr. Aroni are working to transform specialized treatments for chronic conditions through the best in medical science and advanced technologies, visit IntelliHealth.co backslash podcast. And be sure to follow, rate, and review this show wherever you listen to podcasts.